Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim.
trash collector on the table. Feel free to take some trash and out. Uh, nothing would make me happier. That's what I bought them for. Um, and uh, I, I keep saying that, but I'll say it one more time. I'm convinced that the people that are growing the most in their faith are the ones that are active and sharing their faith. That if we are you know, pursuing the lost and being obedient in the Great Commission, God's going to give us more. The Bible says that our faith is a gift of God. It comes from God. God is the Father of gifts. So every good and perfect gift comes down from God, the Father of lights. And our faith is a gift, the Bible says. And so if we're growing in faith, if we're getting faith, it's coming from God. And I truly believe that when we're sharing that faith, when we're going out and, and, and trying to seek and save that which is lost and share it, He's just going to give us more and more. When we stop doing that, we're going to be like a, a, a dam. We're going to just be backed up. And sooner or later, he's just going to stop giving us more food. But if it's going in and it's coming out, he's just going to keep pouring it in. So I encourage you guys to do that. Uh, another thing, uh, July, I think it's the 9th, Sergio? The 9th. We're planning on doing a, a deep search. Some of you guys were asking about that. So we'll get you some more information uh, in the coming week or two about that. Um, but uh, if you want to mark your calendars, July 9th will be when we do that. Uh, so let's uh, dig in. Would you please look at me? Pray for us, and then uh, we'll get into the message. Father, I thank you again that we get to be here. I thank you that you've given us your word, that you've revealed yourself to us, Lord. And what a treasure that is. Without you condescending yourself and revealing yourself through especially the scriptures, we would have no idea who you are. We admit some of these things are difficult for us. They're hard for us to understand. They're contrary to the ideals that we live in in this world, Lord. But I, I, I thank you that you just didn't give us your word. You gave us your spirit to be able to understand your word and interpret your word and take your word and apply it to our lives. So I pray that you would allow us to do that tonight, and we would just see you in new ways and leave here with a greater appreciation uh, for you, Jesus, for your work, the finished work of salvation. You said it is finished, and, and it is. Every aspect of salvation, you accomplished, and we just need to receive it, believe it, and walk in it. So help us to do that. Uh, we love you, and we commit tonight to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, we're talking about the decrees of God, and uh, this is a controversial topic. It really is. We're talking about God's decrees. We're talking about his sovereignty over absolutely everything in the world at all times. And this is especially controversial to the heathen. They, they don't like this idea. They hate the idea of God being in control of everything. And uh, it's becoming increasingly unpopular in the church as well, where more and more Christians aren't liking this idea that God chooses who gets saved. God is in control and foreordained and everything that happens to us. And he's sovereign over the minutest detail of our life. And so it's, it's becoming more and more unpopular. Uh, it's controversial. But again, it's not really that hard to be controversial today, right? All you have to do is say, what is a woman? And you've stirred up a controversy. And, and so I don't think just because something's controversial that we should shy away from it. Right? Some would think that we should shy away from these things. But imagine if we didn't have these conversations like, what is a woman today? 
uh, our, our culture will just slide further and further down the slope of depravity. Uh, it's, that's a conversation that needs to be had. And it's the same way we, we can't avoid the topic of God's decrees. So the, the topic of God's decrees is a, a theological topic that sounds throughout the entire Bible, and it's really foundational to belief in God. To ignore this doctrine would bring great harm to the church. We wouldn't have the, the power, the strength, we wouldn't be able to live out what God wants us to do without having confidence in his absolute sovereignty over everything. But what is a divine decree? I, I, I've mentioned this. Let me give you a couple of definitions. John MacArthur says, God's decree is his eternal plan whereby, according to his decretive will and for his glory, he foreordained everything that comes to pass. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way. God's eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby, for his own glory, he hath foreordained whatever comes to pass. So it has to do with God's foreordaining future events. God's uh, predetermining what's going to happen throughout the history of the world. Ephesians 1.11 says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. This idea of God's ordaining whatsoever comes to pass from all eternity is, is not just really limited to Calvinism or Reformed theology. It's really a, a, a doctrine that's expressed in classical Judaism. It's expressed in uh, Muslim orthodoxy and, and really all Christian orthodoxy uh, with respect to God's nature. It, it, uh, all, all that we're saying in, in saying that God is absolutely sovereign and that he preordained everything is that we believe in theism, really is what we're saying. It, it, it affirms that God's sovereign. And without God's uh, sovereignty, if we deny his sovereignty, then we're denying his nature, and we no longer have the right to call ourselves theists. Right? So, so all we're really saying in, in that we believe that God is sovereign over all of history is that we believe that there's an actual God. Because if God gives that up, then he's no longer God and, and no longer deserves our allegiance or our worship. And the essential nature of God demands that he's sovereign. We find this idea, this principle of his decrees in Psalm 2, verse 7. It says, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. So this word decree is found in Psalm 2. And we also see this expressed different ways throughout the scripture. For instance, in Ephesians 3.11, Paul calls it God's eternal purpose. In Acts 2.23, Peter's preaching on Pentecost. And he uses the terms the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In Ephesians 1.9, Paul says it's the mystery of his will. In Romans 8.29, Paul says that God predestines. In Ephesians 1.11, Paul says these decrees are the counsel of his own will. These are all ways that the Bible is expressing the same idea that God is sovereign, that God has foreordained the events that are going to happen in history. 
And I want to note real quick that, strictly speaking, this idea of God's decrees uh, it didn't come in, in a series of decrees like, like we think. It, it came in one decree. We must remember that God is outside of time. He's outside of space. And he lives in eternity. Remember, he reveals himself to Moses as I am. Right? He just is. That's what he, his nature is. And, and so it would be impossible for God to give decrees in a linear fashion the way we would think of it, because that would involve time. He just is. And, and so it was one decree, one instance, where everything was spoken in time throughout the history of the world. Now he created time, and he's able to come and interject himself and condescend himself into the time and space that he created and bring about his plan for that time and space that he has allotted. But in his essential nature, he's outside of that, and he just is. And so he gave a single decree for ordaining everything that is ever going to happen. So letter A, Ferguson, from the word ordains. God ordains all of history. I've already mentioned that uh, believing that God has a sovereign or has sovereignly ordained the events of history is a prerequisite for believing in God. History isn't like some watch that the maker like made and wound up and then just kind of left to its own self to kind of just run and you know call time. That's not how God created the world. That would be open theism. That is heresy. You see, some people say that God created the world perfect and put everything in it, but then just kind of left the world to itself. They say that the events of the world aren't planned or fixed, but they're working themselves out according to the free will decisions of the inhabitants of Earth. This doesn't jive with the Scriptures at all. That is not at all what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures teach that God created the Earth, He planned the events of it, and he is providentially bringing those plans to pass throughout history the exact way that he said that he would. Isaiah 46, verse 10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time the things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. See, God could declare the end from the beginning, because he has ordained the end from the beginning. It's not hard for him to do it. I also want to note that uh, God's ordination of history doesn't negate our responsibility to make righteous free will decisions. Let me say that again. God's foreordination of all the events of history doesn't negate our responsibility to make righteous free will decisions. You see, God decrees history exactly how it's going to happen, but he gives us a free will. He gives us a volition, and he commands us to make righteous decisions. And we make these decisions, and then he works in and around and through these decisions to make them accomplish exactly what he decreed from the beginning. You see, our, the idea of human responsibility and divine sovereignty, they're not opposed to each other. God uses three responsible decisions to accomplish his divine sovereignty plan. D.A. Carson calls this compatibilism. 
It's compatible. It's almost like looking at the world from two different perspectives. Uh, If we're looking at it strictly from the world, from a human perspective, we're going to see, hey, we're required to make decisions. And and these decisions have consequences, and they play themselves out on earth. But if we were to go to heaven and look at it from heaven, we'll see, no, God is sovereign. God has decreed exactly what's going to happen, and that is exactly what's happening. The two are coming together in perfect harmony. That's why when we read passages like Ephesians chapter 1, and it's all about the sovereignty of God, and how God predestines, God predestines, God predestines, and he accomplishes everything according to his will. It's so strong because in Ephesians 1, we're getting the perspective of heaven. And then there's other passages where it's like, hey, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Yeah, that's the perspective from there. And they both come together compatibly to accomplish what God has ordained. So number one, put God's decrees are eternal. The first five words of the chapter of the confession are, God from all eternity did. This speaks of when God established his decrees. It was in eternity past when God made these decrees. The Second Timothy 1.9 says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Uh, what this is saying is God isn't working these things out as we go along. He, he's not just making up his plan from one instance to the next and saying, wow, this happened, now I'm going to do this. No, he, he's accomplishing what he had ordained from eternity past. Uh, number two. God's decrees are comprehensive. Again, the word comprehensive. And this speaks to the fact that God's decrees include absolutely every detail of what happens in history, down to the very numbers of our hairs, Jesus says. That the very number of hairs that you have on your head are because of the will of God. That's how comprehensive uh, this ordination of God is. Again, Ephesians 1.11 says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to his purpose, who works all things, all things, after the counsel of his will. Now this all things includes a lot. It includes the ordination of good decisions or good actions done by people. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. So it includes the good actions of good people, but it also includes the ordination of sinful acts done by wicked people. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the good of evil. Even the most wicked and evil acts in all of human history, the murder of Jesus Christ, was ordained by God. In Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, they say this, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand had 
and your purpose predestined to occur. The, the king, the Jesus, was predestined and preordained by God. So God could even use was even preordained to have for sinful people. But but he also ordained events that are contingent from the human perspective. Proverbs sixteen thirty three, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. You go to Vegas and you're playing blackjack or twenty one, those dice that you're tossing, those aren't random numbers coming up. God has predestined, preordained, he's sovereign over even what those numbers are. The minutest detail in history, God is sovereign over. And and he's not just ordained the the end or, or the action, but he's also ordained the means and the ends of the acts. In Psalm 119, verses 89 through 91, it says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances. For all things are your servants. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, it says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. Right? So he didn't just foreordain that these people would be saved. He used the Spirit. He foreordained the method, the means of them being saved, the Spirit coming, giving them faith, and sanctifying them to the position of salvation. God ordained the lengths of people's lives. Job 14, verse 5 says, Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot count. Job knew exactly that the number of days he was going to live was the number of days that God had ordained for him. Psalm 39, 4 says, Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. The same idea. Finally, God has ordained where each and every person will live. In Acts 17, remember Paul, he is preaching at Mars Hill, and he says this. He says, And to God gave from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. You may think that you're living in Orange County because that's where you want to live. It's close to your work. It's close to your parents, this or that. No, you're living in Orange County because that's where God has ordained that you're living right now. He's sovereign over everything. There isn't one millimeter of creation or one aspect of history that is left to chance. All of it has been ordained by God in eternity past, and it's been providentially worked out by Him now. So number three, something God's decrees are given freely of His own will and are immutable. So something freely and immutable. We've talked about this, that God freely chose to create. Right? He, he freely chose the, the plan of redemption. Nothing influenced him, right? He wasn't lacking anything. He wasn't bored and needing something to do. And so he said, hey, you know what? We'll create the earth. And there are all these people that we could interact with. And it'll give us something to do. No. He created us freely because he wanted to, to 
100% out of his good pleasure. And he decreed and created exactly out of his good pleasure. Because God's decrees come from his will, and God can't change his mind, this means that his decrees are immutable as well. But what God has decreed will come to pass. The Bible says that God's mind can't change. Psalm 33:11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart, of his heart from generation to generation. God's plans being immutable are hugely important. Because if history isn't fixed, how do we know that the book is going to end the way that it says it's going to end? If history isn't fixed, if God hasn't foreordained how history is going to go, how can I trust that Jesus is going to return and he's going to have victory over this Christ rejecting world and that I get to be with him in a new body on a new earth forever and ever? What trust do I have in that if history isn't fixed? So it's extremely important that we believe in this doctrine of predestination or foreordination because if not, there's going to be huge consequences into our faith. But it's the details that matter. We've all heard the expression that the devil's in the details. We've all heard that. You're signing a contract and you're like, yeah, you know, you got to read the fight signs. The devil's in the details. Well, I think we're kind of on to something, but as Christians, we should say, God is in the details. God is in the details. That should be our line. Once history has consented that the history of Western civilization was changed by a grain of sand in Oliver Cromwell's city with Protestant demise, a bug bit Alexander the Great and changed the course of history. The minutest thing could change entire courses of history. And that's because God's providentially causing these events to come to pass. So number four, God can ordain sin, but is not the author of it. That's when he's standing in the author. How can this be? How can God ordain sin and not be the author of it? How could he predestinate that people could perform evil actions and not be responsible for them? Because he did. He predestined that his son would be killed on Calvary Mountain. Yet he's not responsible for murdering his son. God's not a murderer. How can that be? And we need to understand causality. Because every action has two causes. There's what's called the primary cause, which is God. Acts 17.28, Paul says, In him we live, move, and have our being. God is the primary cause of everything that happens. But then there's also a, a secondary cause or a proximate cause, and that's us. We humans are the secondary cause because we're the ones who commit the sin. We're the ones who choose of our own volition to disobey God and, and to rebel against him. We're the ones doing the sinful action. Right now, as we're talking, the NBA Finals are going on. Probably why all the guys are missing. But anyway, uh, the Washington Warriors are playing, right? And Steph Curry's the point guard. He's the one that runs the Washington Warriors offense. He dribbles the ball. He passes it. He shoots it. He's the one that you know runs the offense and, and, and scores points. Right? He, he's the proximate cause, the, the secondary cause 
to the wilderness. But God's the ultimate cause. God's the one in whom they live and move and have their being. God's the one who decides if the ball's actually going to go through the hoop or not, or if it's going to bounce the other way, or if the ref's going to make a bad call or not, or somebody's going to get hurt, or, or whatever. God's the one who's deciding how the game's going to end. God's the one who did his thing, but he's not responsible for it for two reasons. Number one, he's not the one causing it. He's, he's not the one performing the sin. The sinner is. We choose to, of our own volition, we're not coerced, we're not forced to do anything. We choose 100% to disobey God and to sin. And so God's not responsible for it for that reason. But secondly, God's not responsible for the sin that he foreordains because God only foreordains sin if he is planning to bring something greater out of it. There's a redemptive purpose for it. So like look at the cross. Yeah, his he ordained that his son would be murdered on Calvary Hill, and he was. But that was the means of bringing in something far greater, the salvation of the world, bringing redemption to, to, to his church. You know, God could foreordain something like 9-11 to happen, because out of it, he's going to bring something great. He's going to manifest his grace, his mercy, his power to save out of that event. I'm 100% certain that one day we're going to be in heaven and we're going to look back at our life and we're going to see that the times where we thought where we had the greatest injustice, the greatest hurt, the time that we hated the most, the time that we wished that God would have changed it and that would have never happened. And so that's where we see the most of the glory of God. That's where I see the most of His compassion, the most of His grace, the most of His mercy, the most of His provision, the most of Him. That's where He's going to be the nearest to us. Because that's when we're the most like him. Two examples of this. Let's look at, at Acts 2.23. Let's look at Jesus being killed on Mount Calvary. It says, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And in this verse, there's a lot said. First of all, it says that Jesus was delivered by the predetermined plan of God. That was the primary cause. God ordained that Jesus would be killed. And it says that he was killed by the hands of godless men. That's the secondary or proximate cause. These men weren't coerced. They weren't, God didn't make them kill Jesus. They did it 100% out of their will. That's what their fallen heart's desire was to do, and God let them do it. Lastly, God uses it redemptively. He brought about the salvation of the world through it. Another example of this is Joseph, back in the book of Genesis. Remember, his brothers saw him into slavery. They goes down to Egypt. He's working for Potiphar. Potiphar's wife accuses him. He gets thrown in the dungeon. He's there for years. Finally, there's people in the dungeon have these dreams and he predicts the dreams and then all of a sudden Pharaoh's having crazy dreams and don't know what they are and these two people get released from prison and they're like, oh yeah, there's this guy in jail who could interpret dreams and Pharaoh's like, bring him to me and Joseph interprets his dream and gets promoted to the number two guy in all of Egypt, right? And God used these circumstances to, to put him in that place but now there's a, a family, and, and his brothers are coming to him. And, and his family gets brought down to Egypt. 
And if we really stand justly so good to his brothers, he says, and as for you, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Notice the brothers meant it for evil against Joseph. Joseph's not excusing their sin or their behavior. He's not glossing over that. He's like, hey, God brought something good out of it, so it's all good. No, you meant it for evil. You committed a serious crime against me. But he says, God meant it for good. God meant it for good. Notice how he says, he didn't say God used it for good. It's not like God took this and, you know, found some way to redeem it. No, God meant it for good. It, it, that was God's plan, was to bring you there through this process to bring good out of it. And I know that it's his plan, and I could say that because of what it says in Genesis 45, verses 4 through 8. This is when he reveals himself to his brothers. Remember, his brothers came down, and he pretended like they were spies, and, you know, planting some contraband on them and all this. But it says this, it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be grieved or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there's still five years in which there will be nothing to plow or no harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Now, therefore, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, and a lord to all of his household, and ruler over all of Egypt. Wow. Let's look at one more. In Judges, in chapter 14, now we're dealing with this guy, Samson. Samson's an interesting character, right? Dr. Bob always, whenever he says something, he's always teeming in with the G weakness. And, and that's exactly right in this passage. In Judges 14, 1 through 4, we see this principle played out again. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman named Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman named Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, take her for me as a wife. And then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you have to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now at this time the Philistines were ruling over Israel. Samson's choices, Samson's desire to have this Philistine as his wife didn't honor God. It didn't honor God one bit. First of all, he's breaking the fifth commandment. He's not honoring his father and mother. But then he's also breaking a law with God. God had said that they weren't to enter marriage. In Deuteronomy 7, 3, it says, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. So he's totally being disobedient, and he's totally in the flesh. He's like, hey, she looks good, give her for me. You know, he's just carnally minded. Yet, God had a purpose for Samson's unfaithfulness, 
And it was to bring about deliverance for his people. It was to bring about an occasion to deliver the children of Israel from the Philistines. You see, we, God had, had a plan, he had a purpose, and it even included the unfaithfulness of his people. Now, he didn't call them to be unfaithful. He just allowed Samson to fulfill the desires of his heart and took those free will, unfaithful decisions to accomplish his plan. So God can ordain sinful actions, yet not be the one responsible for them, because he's not the one committing them. And secondly, he wants to bring about something redemptive out of it. So let it be, God chooses some people for salvation, but passes others by. So someone's salvation and passes by. Now the Bible's clear that God predestines some people for salvation. That word predestines in our Bible quite a bit of times. Ephesians 1, Romans 8, for example, that word is there. It's used in the New Testament. Romans 8, 29 and 30, Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he glorified. Now, just about every denomination of Christianity believes in some form of predestination. It's really hard to find a group of Christians who just disregard predestination altogether because, like I said, it's in the Bible over and over again. But where they differ is on how God makes this choice. How does God make this predestination? What are the factors he considers? How does he bring it about? Some of you may have heard the term double predestination. That God predestines sons for hell, and he, or for heaven, and he predestines sons for hell. But he works Positively in both senses. You know, positively working to bring people to himself, and he's positively working to make sure people don't receive him, that they commit sinful acts and go to hell. This is uh, what's called the doctrine of reprobation. And, and, and this is not uh, a biblical thing. We need to be careful with this. On one hand, there's some truth that God's choosing some people who didn't choose others. You know, he, he, he could have chosen everybody, but he didn't. He chose to pick some people. I don't know why he did that, but he did. But where people like the hyper-Calvinists go wrong is they say God actively predestines to salvation and works to bring it about, and that he actively chose people for hell, and he's actively working to make sure that they to hell. And, and that, that, again, is wrong. That's false teaching. You see, what God is doing is he's working positively to bring people to salvation, but then he's just allowing the people, the other people, to just live their life and fulfill their heart's desires and to do what they want to do and bring about condemnation and damnation upon themselves. He simply passes over them. It's a work of negation. He chooses to just allow them to be. One group gets mercy, and the other group gets exactly what they deserve. And what I, I might add this, they get exactly what they want. They, they, they get life away from God. They get autonomy. That, that's exactly 
what they want. But nobody gets unjustice. I love this. When we talk about predestination, I think we kind of have the wrong idea about it. We assume that there's this group of people over here that really want to know God. They want to go to heaven. They want to be with God. But they show up and, you know, the bouncer, Peter, looks at the list and, oh, you want to know? Oh, sorry, can't come in. That's just not true. The Bible says that, you know, that they hate God, that they're not trying to please God. They can't please God, that no one's seeking after God. No one's doing righteousness. No one's one. They want nothing to do with God. Right? So, so, so that's just like a false dichotomy that doesn't exist. Revelation 22.11 says, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, for the one who is holy still be himself holy. So God chooses or predestines some to salvation, and he passes others by. So number one, fill in the word condition. So choice is not based on anything foreseen in us, or in the future, or any condition in us. God's choice is not based on anything foreseen in the future, or any condition in us. Now, the most popular view of predestination in the church today is what's called Pelagianism, or semi-Pelagianism. And this idea is, is that God kind of ripped down the corridors of history and thought who was going to be good people, or who was going to have faith, or you know, who was going to be worthy of saving and elected those people. But there's some serious theological problems with this view of predestination. Number one, God is outside of time and space. It's literally impossible for him to look into the future, see what's going to happen, and react based off of that. Everything for God is, is in the eternal present. It just is. So there, there would be no way for him to do that. Secondly, it would make God reactionary. God's not reactionary. He's the supreme cause. He's the one who ordains and decides what's going to happen. He's not reacting to anybody. Secondly, God is omniscient. He can't learn anything. The Bible says that he has perfect knowledge. He, he, he can't, you know, learn, hey, this person's going to be faithful, so I'm going to choose them. He knows everything about everybody from eternity past. But thirdly, this would make salvation kind of according to our will. Right? If he's looking in the future and saying, who's going to choose him, us, and then basing his choice off of that, the ultimate choice would end with us. John 1, verses 11 through 13, I love the way that NIV has it. It says, he came to that which was his own. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not out of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Ephesians 1.11 again. Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. This view would make God's uh, predestination kind of irrelevant. Right? It, it, he really wouldn't be predestining anything. He would just be foreseeing. Uh, there, there would be no foreordination. He would just be 
14, it's 29, that's when it takes place. It's close, I think, to the biggest exception to this view of God's predestination is, but let's assume that's true. Let's assume that God in eternity past looked down the corridors of history. What would he see? Would he see people that were spiritual and trying to choose him? No, he would see a bunch of haughty rebels. He would see a bunch of people that hated them. He would see a bunch of people that didn't want anything to do with them. And I know that because of what Paul writes in Romans 3. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is on their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. Does anyone see those five before their eyes? God wouldn't see a bunch of people that wanted to choose him and express faith in him. You know, we, as a church, we confess what's called unconditional election. God chose us based on his good pleasure alone. We don't need to meet any type of conditions that made us choosable. I find something interesting. Um, I find this kind of inconsistency in, in Christian groups and the way that they think. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, Moses writes, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and he redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Again, I see this inconsistency because there's one group that just loves predestination. It's usually like the Reformed people. They're just all into Calvinism and just predestination. You know, they're infatuated by that. But they hate Israel. There's no way that God could choose one nation and not all the others. But then I see another group, a lot of Calvinist Catholic people actually, that are just infatuated with Israel and love Israel and everything about Israel. But they are appalled at the idea that God could choose some people for salvation before the foundation of the world and not choose others. It kind of baffles me. <laughs> I know there's no consistency here. Okay. But if God could choose a nation above all the other nations to show himself through and to bless and, and all that, then he could definitely choose a people to be his people and to show himself through and to pour his blessings out upon us. We need to be consistent in the way we think. We need to give God's word the authority it commands. Number two, the number of the redeemed is fixed. Certainly fixed. So God chooses before creation who's he's going to save, and that number's immutable. Because God's immutable. God can't change his mind. God can't change. So those people, they have to
because it shows the numbers not going to change. And so we beg the question. If God's chosen who's going to be saved and that number can't change, what's the point of doing evangelism? Why should I share my faith? After all, those that are predestined, they're, they're going to be glorified. Paul says so in Acts 8, 29 and 8, 30. Why do, why do I need to go out? Why do I need to give up my Friday night to go share the gospel? Well, number one, because Jesus told me to. That should be a good enough answer. Right? There shouldn't be a number two. But number two, because God has chosen to make the proclamation of gospel, the ordained means that he's going to bring sinners into the kingdom of God. And he's given us the privilege of being a part of that mission, that task of preaching the gospel and seeing sinners put their lives to Christ and be transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It really should be our greatest calling and our greatest privilege to go out and share the message of the kingdom. He could have saved everybody the way that he saved the Apostle Paul. In fact, I've talked to many Muslims in the Middle East that are, are getting saved through visions and dreams. They're seeing Jesus and they're all telling me, explaining to me what they saw and it's all the exact same. And so he said, I know they're telling the truth, but what they're giving up to follow Jesus is incredible. They have to be telling the truth. God could save everybody that way. He doesn't need to send evangelists to go talk to people. But he wants to give us that privilege. He wants to allow us to be like Jesus. In Luke 19.10, it says, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And it's enough for a disciple to become like his master. It should be our, our, our driving passion to want to seek and to save that which was lost, to share the gospel with the lost. To, to co-labor with God in the work of salvation. To see the kingdom of God come and manifest itself in certain times in history. I can't think of a greater privilege. Might I add that we're guaranteed success. Because God has people that are appointed for salvation. All we've got to do is just go find them. It's almost like fishing in a barrel. There's an interesting passage in, in Acts 18. Paul's getting a little discouraged and having a hard time. And he wants to move on, go somewhere else. But the Lord appears to him. Let me, let me read it to you. It says in 18, starting in verse 5, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and they blasphemed, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, in the night, by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. God said, you need to stay here, you need to preach, because I've got many people in this city. And God's saying the same thing to us. 
I put you where you work because I've got many people in this workplace. They just don't know it yet. They, they need to hear the gospel so they could be changed and they could become a Christian like you. And I want to give you the privilege of being a part of that. I've got many people on your block that belong to me. They just need the gospel and you have it. should give us confidence knowing that God predestines people. Number three, God doesn't choose who and where, but also chooses the how in our lives. God's foreordaining doesn't just include who will get saved and where they are going, but it also includes the means to how they will be saved. This speaks to God's providence. We're going to have a whole study on that later. Now, the other day, I was asked about these kids that grew up in camps during Mormonism. They have parents, teachers, religious leaders that have brainwashed them into false doctrine. How could God judge them? It's not their fault. That's all that they've ever known. That was the question. My answer is, God, God, God knows how to save those individuals. He knows how to bring the evangelist with the gospel in their path. He can even show up to them in a vision like he did the Muslims. You see, God doesn't just foreordain the salvation. He foreordains the means to that salvation and brings it to pass to make sure that we get to salvation. And he wants to use you and I as part of those means. Number four, those whom God passes by bring him glory too. This isn't something that, that we think about too often. But is the display of God's justice, judging sinners, will bring God just as much glory as the display of His mercy and grace in saving us. Thank you. We can't forget that the unredeemed God, well, we, uh, the unredeemed will glorify God as well. One day we're going to be in heaven and we're going to be worshiping God for His perfect justice, His perfect holiness, His perfect righteousness, His perfect judgment and sentence. And so these people that reject God and end up going to hell, they're going to glorify God in the sense that God's perfect justice, God's perfect holiness is going to be able to be displayed through them. Everything that God created has been created to display the glory of God. Some aspect, some facet of His glory in every creature's work. And some are going to manifest His grace and mercy and forgiveness, and some are going to manifest His holiness, His justice, His judgment. A couple of applications of this, and, and we'll be done. The first one is rest in your assurance. fact that God chose us and it's not the other way around, that should give us great security in our salvation. Right? Because we didn't choose Him. We can't unchoose Him. He chose us at our lowest. He chose us when we were sinners, when we were His enemies. He displayed His love for us and dying for us. Right? So, so we can't get any worse than that. He's not going to unchoose us. God can't change. God's immutable. We're his forever, and that should bring us great comfort. 
it will totally revolutionize the way that we look at the world. Because now every single one of them has a purpose, and it's the greatest purpose there is to display faith. God loves faith. God honors faith. Faith is precious to God. And every bad thing that happens to us is really just an opportunity to have God, to trust faith. And that's what God wants to give us. Now, the last thing we should ever do is conflate and blunder. Because if we believe that God's sovereign, we believe that He's predestined every act that's ever going to happen in our life, and there's a purpose for it, and we know that He's working all things together for our good, He's taking these purposes and making them work for our good to conform us to Christ. What do we have to complain about? Who are we really complaining against? We're complaining against God. We also have no right to ever have a pessimistic spirit or pessimistic attitude. Some people have secret projects and working it for our good. What do we have to be pessimistic about? We should be filled with the joy of the Lord, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. So the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the predestination really should be a great comfort to us. It should transform the way that we see things, especially bad things that happen in our life. Cause us to worship, cause us to honor God, to accept faith. Amen? So, God, we do thank you. We thank you that you chose us from the foundation of the world. We thank you that you're in charge of the history of this world. Lord, because you'd do a better job with it than anybody else. We thank you that we could trust you in these difficult times. Lord, I pray that we would express faith, we would honor you in these situations. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and lead us to those around us that you've appointed for salvation. Give us the boldness to preach the gospel, Lord, and manifest your power to save in our present, Lord. We, we want to see the kingdom of God be manifested in history, Lord, through the gospel. So give us that opportunity. But we realize we need to step out in faith and open our mouths to let that happen. So give us that boldness, Lord. I thank you that we get to be here. I thank you for everybody that's here. I pray for those that aren't here. I pray that you protect them, that you keep them, that you bring them back to us next week. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.